Hey crew, before we get started today, I wanted to remind you that today's guest, John Jackson Miller, has a ton of Star Trek and Star Wars material available on Amazon.com, specifically his Prey Trilogy, which we referenced during the show. All three books from the Prey Trilogy are currently on sale as part of a Kindle promotion. You can get each one for $1.99. It's a great deal for a great series of books. So if you've got a Kindle or a Kindle app and you love hot Trek action, click through the links in the show notes to pick them up. But hurry, this deal is over at the end of the month. And while you're on Amazon, there's plenty of Star Wars material by John as well, like the paperback version of the Canto Bite anthology, featuring stories about the Casino City from The Last Jedi. That comes out on May 29th, so you still have a chance to pre-order and do yourself a favor and check out John's excellent Kenobi novel, as well as his extensive and awesome work on the Knights of the Old Republic franchise. Trek and Wars, Together in Harmony. We talk a little bit about both franchises on this episode. John is a great guest, and it was good to get a chance to talk with him again. Hope you enjoy. Let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I suddenly had a great idea for a procedural show. He's an android and a rookie judge on the Federation Circuit Court, and he's a veteran prosecutor who's headed up to here trying self-aware machines and godlike aliens, but they'll have to work together to bring justice to the UFP. It's Data and the Bald Man, this fall on CBS. <laughs> I'm joined again on this episode by New York Times bestselling author John Jackson Miller. John has written books and comics set in the Star Wars universe, including A New Dawn, the prequel novel to the Rebels series. His Star Trek work includes the Star Trek Titan novella Absent Enemies, the TNG novel Takedown, and the Prey trilogy. His work has been featured most recently in Canto Bite, a collection of stories featuring adventures in the intrigue-filled titular city seen in Star Wars The Last Jedi. John is also a comics historian who tracks comic news and sales information at Comicron.com. John, welcome back to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Good to have you back on board. I may be I, I may be the only person who actually got the Jake and the Fat Man joke. <laughs> uh, well, it's a good thing I didn't go with Hardcastle and McCormick then, I guess. <laughs> well, I could do that too. <laughs> <laughs> Today we'll be talking about Devil's Due, the 13th episode of the fourth season of Star Trek The Next Generation. The Starship Enterprise is a vehicle that can take you to other planets, but it's a metaphorical vehicle as well, one that has allowed generations of writers to examine ideas of all kinds and to explore new and intriguing characters through the lens of science fiction, but perhaps the greatest technique that sci-fi possesses as a genre is that of allegory, where modern moral or political themes can be dressed up in new clothes, and sometimes green makeup, and used to comment on our current society. And from the nuclear brinksmanship of the Corbomite maneuver to the commentary on political divisions found in Discovery, Star Trek has spent over 50 years telling stories about aliens that were really about us. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. Uh, Mark, have you been watching Discovery? I've uh, I've seen a few episodes of it. Have, I'm not totally up to date on it. What do you uh, think of what you've seen so far? 
Oh, it's uh, it's been very good. I mean, it's uh, it's I've uh, I've I've got I've got CBS All Access for the purpose, and I've been waiting to have them all pile up. Ah, yeah. <laughs> and sure. I guess we're I guess they're they're now all available at this point. So that's like a lot of modern TV shows. That's probably the best way to watch it because of how um, you know heavily serialized it is. Yeah, and getting control of the television uh, in my house is <laughs> is another issue. And so, you know, there is you know, a, there's an all access app. I mean, you can watch it on any device too, if you want. It's, uh, it, it is, but I I tend to default <laughs> to the biggest machine in the house. So yeah, I did an episode of uh, this show recently where I was looking into the discrepancy in review scores between critics and audiences for Discovery. Uh, critics mm-hmm. rate it generally high, and audiences seemed uh, mixed to negative. And the same is true for The Last Jedi, uh, the last entry in the Star Wars franchise. Uh, what do you think is behind fandom's tepid or uh, tumultuous response to these properties? Uh, you know, I think that the problem is that, uh, you know, one of the things is that... Uh, uh, and it's it's not a new concept. It, it you know, famously it's been said uh, you have to give the fans the story they they want, not the story that or, I'm sorry. You have to give the fans the story they need, not the story that they want. Okay. Uh, you have you have to give the fans a or, or give readers a story that they're not expecting. Um, right. And uh, because otherwise, you know, all you're doing is just fan service the whole time. And it's the same story <laughs> again and again and again yeah. with all the same beats, all the same characters and nothing ever advances. Yeah. Uh, and nothing is ever new. And, um, you know, the problem, of course, is everybody is a reviewer now. Everybody has the ability to go on Twitter or Facebook or uh, and again, there are these platforms which can be more or less weaponized, uh, <laughs> right. like Rotten Tomatoes or Amazon reviews or that sort of thing, uh, where people can judge these works against the works that they were expecting yeah. uh, and and didn't get. Uh, and so, you know, it it's, does not make their opinion any less valid uh, necessarily, but uh, you know, the fact is you're going to see these kind of disjoints uh, where, you know, uh, there may well be a moment five years, 10 years, 20 years down the line of a lot of different pictures where we'll say, gosh, what were we thinking, us reviewers, for liking this particular thing? Yeah. Or, um, you know, w- you know, why didn't people warm up to it uh, earlier? I mean – you know, one of the highest, uh, you know, ranking movies of the last 25 years, uh, Shawshank Redemption, is a film that didn't do well at the box office, really, uh, relative to all the other things that were out. Uh-huh. It was something that people didn't really discover until it was on home video uh, and on TV, where they could sort of, you know, absorb it and think about it. And, you know, it was sort of divorced from the expectations uh, game that was was involved there. I think one of the issues with with Last Jedi is you have the ex, the expectations game going in there. Uh, you know, J.J. Abrams set up a number of mysteries uh, that uh, Ryan Johnson decided not to pursue. Right. Uh, and I actually like the idea behind not pursuing them uh, simply because uh, it fits with the general notion uh, that I think the film is trying to push which is that the real problem that the galaxy has had to deal with is that there have been these Jedi and there have been these Sith who always rise to face the Jedi. And as a result, it doesn't really matter who Snoke is. Uh, He's just random Dr. Evil number 47. Uh, (laughs) And as long as there is a Jedi order, there will be these people on the other side, which is why Luke Skywalker comes to the conclusion that, hey, you know what? 
this all has to stop. Yeah. Um, and so if your investment, however, is in, well, I want to see a new generation of Jedi and Luke teaching them, and I want to see one of those kids going bad and, you know, falling to the dark side and giving us the same stories that we've already seen, you know, if that's what you want, well, that wasn't what this film was. So I kind of think that, you know, it, 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 to a degree, um, you know, whether the film was a success or not, uh, critically is going to be a different uh, matter than uh, yeah, individual responses to it. And as far as whether it actually, you know, uh, holds up to the test of time going forward, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I can say that I liked it better than Seven because it tried something different. Okay, sure. And who can say? I mean, I'm always fascinated by that gap between expectation and sort of what we get. And also, I mean, I've got an entire podcast that looks at films that uh, critics rejected but audiences embraced uh, called Craft of Services, where we look at that gap in the ratings. And I think it's a good metaphor in this particular case that part of the problem in Last Jedi is that you've got a bunch of entitled people who think that they're special and are, you know, turning the galaxy over every couple of years, you know, uh, over their little wars and their power struggles. And, you know, they're trying to get rid of that specifically, like Luke is saying, forget all that. You know, the Jedi are self-important. The Sith are self-important. Well, that's that's that, the problem. That, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And in fact, one of the one of the themes of my earlier Star Wars work, particularly in the Knights of the Old Republic comics that I did, which are now all coming out from uh, from Marvel under um, in these big epic collections called yeah. the Old Republic. Uh, one of the big themes I had was the Republic's tension, particularly the Republic Navy and their tension with the Jedi who just are these self-appointed generals who are allowed to put themselves on bridges uh, and, you know, and and basically, you know, act in the in the Star Trek manner as commissioners would in the old TV series. Uh, you know, the and and, you know, you kind of uh, you kind of wonder who's in charge there. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the and I've said this before, that the Jedi order is a real mixed bag uh, for for the Republic. A mixed blessing. Uh, on the one hand, it's uh, hey, look here, here they're a free police force. They're a free <laughs> army. Isn't that great? Right. Uh, and then every so often, one of them goes nuts and kills everybody. It's right. sort of like it's sort of like you know the ED two hundred nine in RoboCop. <laughs> uh, you know, you it's it, you, you're sort of, you sort of say, well, this is this is maybe not the not the not the big deal it ought to be, and right. so. We didn't vote uh, for these guys. <laughs> and so, it, you know, in particular, almost all of my Star Wars works have been about a Jedi who breaks away or, or a Jedi who simply is alone and apart from the Jedi Order, uh, trying to do what Jedi probably should be doing in the absence of, um, you know, uh, of this big structure, right. uh, which is not to worry about politics, not to worry about balance of power, uh, and, and instead more to just help people. <laughs> and uh, and it sounds it sounds crazy, but um, you know that's that's to be honest, that's my favorite moment uh, in a movie that doesn't have many favorite moments. The Attack of the Clones. Okay. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, my favorite moment is just that little scene in the bar where the guy offers Obi Wan death sticks, <laughs> and he says, "You don't want to you don't want to give me death sticks. You want you want to go home and think about your life." Right. Well, what's he doing? I mean, he's ministering. I mean, he's actually out sure. there. If you want to look at if you want to look at it as uh, you know a, a religious sort of a thing, or if not that, it's social work. 
Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's it's Outreach. it's it's being somebody who helps point the way. Yeah. And uh, allows the 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 regular people to do for themselves. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's kind of where Last Jedi leaves it, uh, because we're down to the people at this point. Um, not knowing what Ray is going to end up being, we're down to the people doing for themselves. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, you know I, I, I'm totally down with that. That was, you know, that was sort of how the Knights of the Old Republic arc ended with, uh, with uh, indeed, my Jedi character was on the bridge of a military vessel, uh, but he wasn't in charge. He was just there to sort of be the conscience yeah. Uh, and and, uh, you know, sort of act as act as uh, act as more or less Deanna Troy uh, on, on, <laughs> in Star Trek and 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 not to be the person that's actually moving the uh, the units on the on the map. Yeah. Um, and so uh, and that's how the and that's how the Jedi always get in trouble. Uh, again, I, I find it's funny that all these things kind of roll together in my mind from these different franchises, whether it's, uh, you know, questions about, uh, you know, uh, Star Trek or Star Wars. Or well, now RoboCop. I've worked into this. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. A uh, little green guy handing out lightsabers is no basis for a system of government. Oh, uh, there you go. Well, we're crossing the streams pretty hard here, but let's let's keep going for a little bit. Uh, of course, you've got uh, Canto Bite out right now, and you also wrote an issue of Star Wars Adventures. Um, right. For somebody who spent a lot of time writing about you know the Mandalorian Wars and such, what was it like to get to write for uh, Luke and Leia and classic characters? It's the first time I've ever gotten to do it, and that's crazy considering I've written over a hundred Star Wars <laughs> yeah. comics and short stories and you know novels and and games and other things. Uh, I wrote a small scene with Luke in it. Uh, it was a you know it was a it was a uh, Jedi vision at one point. Okay, but really that's it. I mean I uh, everything has been at different parts of the timeline. Yeah. Uh, and so when I was approached um, at Star Wars Celebration last year by the publisher. Uh, before they, you know, announced the, uh, you know, the, this this line of children's comics, um, you know, I said, yeah, I, I'd, I'd certainly be interested, uh, and I ended up writing uh, what was originally going to be a two-parter, and they decided that they were going to put the piece, uh, put the, the parts together in sort of this uh, this spring special, this annual that they have coming out mm-hmm. uh, in April, and so I'm definitely looking forward to seeing that. Uh, you know, it's it'll be my first Star Wars comic book. Uh, since I think the end of 2012. So it's been a while. On the subject of comics, and as a comics historian, I'd be interested in your opinion. Um, Marvel's recently announced a fresh start initiative for its characters and properties, bringing back classic versions of characters and resetting the issue numbering again. And it's an attempt, presumably, to convert readers from film fans to comic readers. Uh, DC's done the same thing twice in the last decade with uh, its New 52 and Rebirth initiatives. What's your opinion of these comic shakeups from a comics history perspective? Do they work? Well, uh, you know, you said recently announced as we were recording this, it's uh, it's like less than 36 hours old. Right. <laughs> uh, and in fact, in that time, uh, we've actually had time for Marvel to come out and say that they're they even though they are restarting the numbering, they're going to do shadow numbering, uh, which is sort of a dual numbering system that they did back in the early 2000s. Yeah. So you'll still have the ordinal number uh, on the cover someplace mm-hmm. uh, and that'll allow people who want to keep track that way to keep track that way. Um, but yeah, I, I, the thing that, the thing that we've observed with these things is they can do, they can be successful. They can be very successful as in the case of the, the DC relaunch in 2011, which really I think is sort of one of the inflection points of the last 
uh, 20 years because, you know, that sparked uh, a, a period uh, where we've, you know, we've just now had six out of seven years of growth uh, since then. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's really just this last year that we uh, we hit a rough patch. Uh, and uh, and then there have been sort of more modest uh, attempts to reboot. And I think the I think if Marvel's had an issue, it's that uh, it's simply it's harder to brand its reboots because they don't they don't do everything uh, you know the whole way that DC would do certainly with Crisis on Infinite Earths, which was you know this is a dividing line and we're never going to refer again to anything that happened before yeah. uh marvel was always more loose with this sort of thing and so you know if there has been any you know you know diminution in the ability of these things to actually make a difference uh it might have something to do with that but I'm I'm somebody who very much believes that the history of comics and and again I'm I'm certainly interested in in the numbering and keeping keeping the numbering on as many books as possible. Yeah, I, I think that these things are part of uh you know uh, uh, uh you know it, when when you see Wall Street value a company they put a number on goodwill uh they put a number <laughs> on the value of the brand name. Yeah, and I think that I think that you know part of the value of action comics at DC is that it's about to hit issue 1000. It's not that anything important has happened in action comics in 80 years since Superman was created necessarily, uh, <laughs> or not. I mean, maybe there have been, and certainly there have been actually, but the, the fact of the matter is it's the, it, it, it really is, uh, you know, the, 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 the book itself, the name itself, the number on the cover is a monument to its place in readers' lives all these years. Yeah, uh, and so, uh, you know, and that's something that comics have that a lot of other you know, things might not necessarily have. Uh, you know, somebody has to come and tell you this is the thirtieth season of The Simpsons or whatever it happens to be. Right. Uh, it's it's not something that you will automatically know. Yeah. I uh, I agree. Um, I think that comics should do whatever they can to get new readers, but I don't – thinking of myself as somebody – like when I first started buying comics, I had been a fan of superheroes through – uh, you know, through cartoon shows and action figures and things like that before I was a regular comic buyer. And I think the first comic I bought was Uncanny X-Men 272. And yes, I didn't know exactly what was happening in the issue, but I figured it out pretty fast. It wasn't like some bar to me. And they seem to have it in their heads that the fact that it is issue 1000 or whatever is going to keep people away. And it's like, well, I think if you've got good product, you've got a serial medium that's been running for 80 years, like you are what you are. And, you know, my first issue, and this is showing my age, my first issue of Amazing, or rather of, of Uncanny X-Men was 155. Okay. And this is a great point because they knew how to actually tell the story in such a way that, you know, they you could understand what was going on and they would tease things. Yeah. There's a panel in that issue where Scott Summers' father, uh, 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 Cyclops' father, Corsair, um, you know, is having a conversation with Storm and he says, oh, uh, hey, where's Jean Grey? And she just looks at him and the caption is, and the story of Dark Phoenix is told again. <laughs> okay, yeah. 
And of course, this is a story that I had missed by about a year and a half. Yeah. But that was enough. I didn't have to have it all spelled out to me. It was clear to me that whatever this thing was, was hugely important. And in fact, it was one of the most important stories in years in comics. Yeah. Uh, and is still important now. Uh, and um, I went to go get it. So, uh, you know, <laughs> really, you know, it, it doesn't matter what the number on the cover is. Uh, people will be attracted to, uh, you know, the right kind of story or the, uh, you know, and and uh, and uh, a story that's told in such a way that it, it feels new and fresh. Um, you know, uh, I look at I look at, uh, you know, Batman put year one in the middle of the Batman run. Uh, when Jim Lee came in to do the Hush storyline, they put it in the middle of the regular Batman run. Yeah. They could have made it all in a they they could have probably made a little more money by putting it in uh, in its own miniseries. But the fact that those happen as part of the regular series ended up helping the series overall for years after those creators left the book. Yeah. Last comics question. <laughs> we should talk about Star Trek. Uh, have you seen uh, Black Panther? Oh yeah, I saw that. Uh, saw that this weekend. Nice. Uh, very good. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, yeah, very impressive. Uh, you know, they have a way of making all of these movies uh, feel like completely different experiences. Uh, they're just very good at it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so uh, I enjoyed that a lot. I knew it was going to be big, but I had no idea that it would eventually top even the Last Jedi for opening weekend. Gross. I you know I and in February. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And yeah, you know, February is a dumping ground for movies. Usually, yeah. Uh, why did you choose this specific episode, Devils Do, to discuss today? Uh, well, you know, when I came on before and and we uh, we talked about uh, Rightful Heir, that right. was a tie-in to um, you know the the Prey trilogy that I wrote uh, that released in the fall of uh, 2000, uh, 2016 for Star Trek. Uh, one of the things that I've done with all my stories is I kind of pick an episode or two episodes or three episodes uh, that I'm going to play off of okay. uh, and sort of use to, you know, mine for concepts and everything. So, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the takedown novel I wrote uh, plays off of the nth degree. Uh, the Titan short story that I wrote plays off of the next phase. Um, and, uh, and in, uh, in Prey, which is a trilogy, yeah, there are actually sort of three episodes of the uh, the of the next generation that are kind of uh, the heart of the inspiration for it. Uh, there's Rightful Heir. Uh, there's uh, there's Sins of the Father, which uh, is the source of the uh, is is the source of the other part of the Klingon thing. Mm. Uh, you know, Rightful Heir gives us Kalos. Uh, Sins of the Father gives us Discommendation. Uh, and then the the third part of it is uh, is uh, is Devil's Due and. Devil's Due connects to the fact that in Prey, um, you know, I have this sort of illusionist cast uh, that is working with the, um, you know, working with the the Klingon who's trying to, uh, you know, get control of his house, and he's uh, he's anyway. I don't want to get too far into the into the into the details of <laughs> sure. it, but but uh, it it, it you know, the the storyline all along was going to involve illusionists. Uh, and, uh, you know, their, their services being sort of weaponized, uh, in a, uh, in a political, uh, conflict. Hmm. Uh, and so I, I had looked back at, uh, you know, various things and, uh, involving that, um, you know, Ardra actually, you know, her part in my story 
uh, predates, you know, quite a few of the other parts that are in there, including even Kalis's uh, role in the story. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I can get into a little bit more of, of, you know, how it impacted my story, I guess, after we, after we tell people what happened in the actual episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, something that occurred to me, and again, we can get into this in more detail later, but is that the, uh, the episode features, you know, a con man or a con woman in this instance, and her swindle is based on religious beliefs. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, atheist, Star Trek is humanist paradise. Is the subtext here that religion is a swindle in Star Trek? You know, I, I don't even know that it's it's that uh, that, you know, that complicated or that subtextual. I mean, in part because if you think about this episode and its origins, even though it's, as you said, the 13th episode of season four. So we're talking about February of 1991. Right. Um, you know, it it, it, um, it was a, a script that they pulled off the shelf. That's right. Uh, this was a phase two storyline. Yes. Uh, and uh, it, it and I, I think when uh, when Keith DeCandido did a uh, review of it, um, he was not it, kind it, and he was not kind uh, is yeah. a little harsher than I think I would be. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the complaint is that this was written for the 60s. Yeah. Uh, it was written for the 60s characters in the 70s. Right. Uh, and it just does not it, it is not convincing enough of a uh, of a caper uh, to believe that either it could be put over or that it would fool anybody for very long yeah. I looked at those things as being you know part of a part of part of something I could fix uh, <laughs> okay my story. Right. sure that's always good uh, especially if you're adapting something older to try and fix what went wrong uh, it is a next generation episode it's devil's due as you said it came out on the 4th of February actually in 1991 it's the 13th episode of the fourth season the teleplay uh, in this case is by Philip Lezebnik who's a screenwriter who also wrote the story for the episode Darmok and the teleplay for the DS9 episode Fascination and he worked on the scripts for Disney's Pocahontas and Mulan, incidentally. Uh, the story for the episode is by Lezebnik and also by William Douglas Lansford. Lansford was a screenwriter who got his start in the 50s, and he wrote scripts for TV shows like Bonanza, Ironside, Fantasy Island, and Chips. No word on if he made it to Hardcastle and McCormick. He also wrote <laughs> several nonfiction works about the lives of figures like Jack London and Pancho Villa. This is his only Star Trek script. This episode was directed by Tom Benko, who was an editor, writer, and a director for the Star Trek franchise, and he was really a jack-of-all-trades. He edited over 100 episodes of TNG, DS9, and Voyager together, and he also wrote the stories for the DS9 episodes Return to Grace and The House of Quark. The start date for the episode is 4447.4.5, and your assignment, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Devil's Due. <laughs> My assignment, 25 words. Uh, uh, this is uh, Devil's Due. Uh, a, uh, a a con artist uh, visits, uh, or rather, uh, gosh, uh, Picard and crew uh, rescue the people of Ventax 2 uh, from a con artist posing as their deity, Ardra, uh, in order to uh, extort the planet for riches. Sure. Uh, there we go. I, I think that that's pretty that's pretty succinct. Uh, you had mentioned before that this was a script for Phase Two, and that is absolutely correct. Uh, if 
our listeners, I hope they know, but if they don't, Phase 2 was an unproduced sequel series to the original series of Star Trek. And uh, Lansford uh, wrote this in 78, um, as far as I could ascertain, you know, for the uh, Phase 2 treatment. Um, of course, the uh, 1998 Writers Guild strike delayed production on the second season of TNG, and that saw the uh, production go scurrying for scripts. You know, what was left over? What can we get in case we don't have any writers for the second season? Uh, ultimately, they got this from the bin and also The Child, which ended up being the second season premiere of Next Generation. Uh, Michael Piller commissioned executive script consultant Melinda Snodgrass to rewrite this script for the TNG characters, but it was determined eventually that the script would need more of an overhaul in order to fit the new series, and over 15 writers, it's estimated, would help rewrite this script. Um, and it was given a wow. more, yeah, uh, it went through <laughs> the ringer for sure. It was given a more comedic tone than the original. The original story was set on the planet New Terra, which, come on, New Terra, yeah. anyway. Uh, and the Enterprise's computer would serve as the judge of the arbitration between Kirk and Comether, a male entity. Uh, she was made, uh, the devil was made into a woman for the uh, TNG episode. Uh, I think that explains, at least, at the very least, why Picard acts a little bit like Captain Kirk in this episode. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, it, it, it throws a seductress in there. Uh, you know, that's that's sort of, you know, <laughs> Ardor takes a liking to uh, to Picard. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the the other element with this uh, and it is something that I deal with in the Prey trilogy. Uh, you know, the, the notion that they're extorting this planet for physical wealth um, doesn't make any sense in the Replicator era. Um, this is a storyline that makes much more sense back in the original series right. uh, or in phase two. Uh, and of course, the way that I attack this in uh, in the replicator or uh, the replicator business, the way that I attack this in uh, in prey uh, is that the circle, um, which I call the circle of Jalan, which Ardra belongs to, one of many, uh, you know, one of many, uh, you know, uh, we call them practitioners uh, who are working with a team of uh, basically special effects technicians back on uh, back on her uh, back on her ship. Okay. Um, the ships require so many exotic parts okay. to keep running. Uh, and uh, you know this is not something that they can just find at the local uh, department store and it's also not something that they can uh, they can replicate. Um, because again, I, I came up with the notion that their, their brand of, uh, you know, merging holography with, uh, with, uh, with a human actor, uh, as well as, you know, what have to be some pretty significant, uh, sensor, uh, technologies, okay. <laughs> uh, to be able to, to be able to, to be able to peer through walls because she's able to actually interact with things, yeah. uh, in her guise. Yeah. Um, you know, it, 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 so, so it's not just that she's physically there. She has to be physically there inhabiting whatever, you know, whatever, uh, uh, whatever, whether she's look, looks like, looks like the devil or, uh, Phalar or what Fecklar or whatever the character is. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the clothing that she's wearing has to interact with the, with the furniture and everything else. Uh, and also, you know, there's, I think there's moments in there where, uh, yeah, it's indicated that she's able to generate heat and various other things. And again, uh, there's got, just got to be a lot of stuff going on here. <laughs> uh, and in fact, one of the things that that, you know, kind of prey does is says that, 
you know, we and in fact, we even have we even have Jordy say, you know what? I, I think my I think my theory advanced at the end of this episode uh, as for how she was able to do things misses some stuff. Okay. Um, because it what what's dis, what what is shown on screen really can't be explained by their explanation. Yeah, <laughs> so. I would agree for some of that. Uh, definitely. Um, this episode was actually nominated for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Costume Design for a Series, and it was actually the highest rated episode of the series to this point behind Encounter at Farpoint. I'm trying to figure out why that is, because uh, I, I read that, too, and I, I, I thought, you know, uh, what else was on? This would be February sweeps of 1991. Yeah. Uh, you know, what else would have been on at the time? Of course, at the time, you know, uh, Trek was airing just randomly in every market it was in. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, I guess I would look at it and say, well, maybe there's, you know, no Olympics going on and maybe it's a, <laughs> maybe it's a snowy week and everybody is stuck inside. I don't know. Uh, but I, I just, you know, why this one in particular, I think one possibility, and again, this is, um, uh, this is, this kind of gets into uh, you know Keith's problems with it uh, is that it it doesn't feel like uh, an episode that a Star Trek writer would necessarily write mm-hmm. uh, or a it, 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 or rather it kind of feels more like a first time Star Trek writer's story um, because it doesn't grapple with some of the physical difficulties involved here. It, it is a very simplistic kind of an idea. Yeah, uh, what she's doing. And maybe that's what helped the episode do better because people were able to stick with the episode a little bit longer. Okay. Uh, maybe maybe people just liked seeing. Uh, I guess Marta Dubois was her uh, the actress's name. Yeah, maybe. Marta Dubois. Dubois yeah. yeah. Maybe they just like seeing her on screen. It's possible. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, she's are, anything's possible. <laughs> she plays Ardra. Uh, she's a television television actress with many guest credits uh, on shows in the eighties, like Magnum PI, Matlock. Uh, it's becoming a theme for the episode, uh, ADTV. Yeah. Uh, she's still active today. She can be seen in the Hallmark Channel McBride film series alongside John Larroquette. Uh, Stella Stevens and Adrian Barbeau were both considered for the role of Ardra. Apparently, um, Dubois had auditioned several times in the past for the show, but they had never found what they thought was the right part for her until this one. And I think that it is the right part. I think she did a great job. Paul Lambert plays Dr. Howard Clark in this episode. He is the head of the research team that we see in the first part of the episode and i bring him up not because that he's a particularly accomplished actor but what is he doing there <laughs> like why <laughs> why is this research team there uh i don't i don't know I, I i will say you know i caught a wink that was in the script that i didn't realize okay. was there uh because uh, I, I i reread the wikipedia entry and somebody mentioned you know, well the you know the clark uh the you know the, the clark's uh, clark's law about uh, you know, technology being indistinguishable from magic. Oh, sure. Well, sure. one of these guys is named Clark. Well, I just realized something else that's kind of a fun moment here. Um, uh-huh. Here's here's a fun thing associated with uh, with uh, with uh, with Ardra uh, as she appears in Prey. Uh, in her organization, uh, the I, I I had the official title of sort of the you know the Sorcerer Supreme, the the top illusionist. Uh, be illusionist Magnus. Okay. Magnus was a reference to Jeff McBride, who uh, he he is that that was his uh, he, he's he's an illusionist, a Las Vegas magician uh, who uh, appeared in uh, an episode of Deep Space Nine, 
as uh, as one of uh, as one of uh, as one of uh, one of the Daxes. Oh, okay. uh, all, right. episode, yeah. all the Daxes are there. Sure. And so uh, Magnus was his stage name. He's an illusionist. I was already drawing on all this magical stuff because we've got Houdini and uh, and just all sorts of other, uh, you know, you know, things about uh, magicians in the past in there. Uh, and so uh, and and so uh, I yes I, I named the uh, you know the the office illusionist Magnus okay uh, and and sent a, <laughs> sent the sent a, sent the books to uh, to McBride himself and he sent he sent he sent a nice card back he oh, thought yeah. it was <laughs> That's he, great. He, he, no he, he thought it was great and and it just it just dawned on me that Ardra the actress went on to appear in a show called McBride yes so <laughs> wow. That's the, yeah, so that's uh, everything sort of uh, connects circularly here. You've you've done it. You've out detailed me. I think. Uh, well, no, that's that's uh, that. Well, that's sort of the 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 five degrees of uh, six degrees of uh, of Ardra, I suppose. Yeah, I know the six degrees of Ardra. I love it. I know that people live longer and live fuller lives in the twenty fourth century, but this guy should be bouncing some great grandkids on his knee. What's he doing in a ski suit out in the middle of nowhere on this planet? It just seems yeah, funny. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, Tom McGee appears briefly in this episode as the Klingon demon Feklar. Uh, McGee, you may or may not know this name, McGee was a world champion bodybuilder and he had a brief career as a professional wrestler in the 80s in the WWF as Mega Man McGee. Uh, he was initially a real blue chipper. He was seen as a contender for the heavyweight title, but he had the bad fortune of starting his career at the same time as a wrestler named the Dingo Warrior, who you may know as the Ultimate Warrior, who became a huge sensation, so no room for Mega Man there at the top. To put it in <laughs> comics terms, I compare this to being one of the characters who was not Superman in Action Comics number one, like Sticky Mitt Stimson or Scoop Scanlon. We're not going to see those guys anymore. Those guys are gone. Uh, well, I don't know. When the uh, thousandth issue of Action comes out, maybe somebody <laughs> will actually. Right back. <laughs> for the heck of it, I mean, you know, for all those people who have Action One sitting around, yeah. uh, flipping through it while they're eating uh, French fries. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, well, you know, one of the uh, one of the interesting another another sort of a prey sideline here is, of course, the second book of of prey, which focuses on uh, the illusionist cast uh, as as Ardra, as represented by Ardra. Uh, the the figure on the cover is a devil, uh, and uh, people were asking, well, why isn't it the Klingon devil? Yeah, <laughs> because again, you know, it was a Klingon storyline, uh, and uh, it, it turns out it it. It really wasn't supposed to be that devil anyway. It was just sort of a miscommunication between me and the uh, uh, the the uh, the team, uh, because the the devil that's described in um, in the uh, in the plot uh, that I provided was actually the uh, the the devil of one of the other species that's in the book. Oh. Uh, the uh, the uh, which would. Uh, uh, and that figure would look sort of like a Pegasus and absolutely nothing like a, <laughs> oh, wow. a, a devil anyway. So uh, I'm just as happy that they didn't try to do the devil that uh, that Ardra turns into in that uh, in that story, though. <laughs> Who looks uh, like uh, when when uh, Donald Duck uh, faces his evil version, it looks like a guy in a Halloween costume. Yeah, that's not that's not great. So uh, <laughs> But uh, but no, we, we did establish that there were a number of uh, of characters in Ardra's database that uh, that uh, you know you could turn into. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. And so that would uh, that would be one of them. 
Well, I have to say right out, uh, just honestly, you know, this episode is not exactly a favorite of mine. I mean, it's not capital B bad by any means, but you know, it's just kind of average. It feels like a mediocre episode of the original series in that, you know, as you said, you know, it's simplistic narratively. There's no B plot. Um, it's got that kind of clumsy sexuality that Trek has sometimes. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, you know, this writer needs a date. Uh, and it's kind of the, it's got that self-satisfied abrupt ending where they're like, oh, we've upended an entire society's belief system. Mission accomplished. Let's move on. Let's go. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. Well, and and since they had to be on to another planet the next week, I realized that there was absolutely no, you know, follow up on what happened to Ardra or, um, <laughs> right. you know, or Till we meet ship. again. <laughs> and, and yeah, what, what happened is again, when I'm doing my plotting, I realized that she had appeared again in three issues of the Next Generation TV, uh, a comic series that DC did. Oh, okay. Uh, having basically, you know, broken loose, stolen her ship, and then she got captured and sent back. Uh-huh. Uh, and I realized, well, she hasn't been used in, you know, the two decades since. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, in fact, it was the case when I originally proposed the series. Uh, that she would be more dastardly. She would be, uh, instead of sort of this this other uh, this other sorcerer's apprentice who causes so much trouble, uh, it was going to be her in that role. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know CBS said no. You know Ardra is a bad person, but we never see her murdering people left and right. right. <laughs> um, and of course, my guy in the in the in the novel, you know, is is you know sending you know whole planetary populations to their doom uh just for just for kicks uh so um you know it but uh again you know i i realized that there was all this stuff there that was uh available uh to be played upon uh and you know it is to sort of uh you, you know the way that we put it in the series uh you know, these these are illusionists, uh, you know, sort of techno mages, if you want to use the Babylon Five expression, yeah. uh, whose uh, whose fortunes have gone so very wrong because uh, with the uh, with the extension of the Federation and busybodies like Picard, uh, all of their easy pickings for anything uh, have have really dwindled, hmm. and they have gone from, you know, what was you know, acting for art, really, uh, you know, they, they would just get together and compare notes about, Hey, I posed as God for this particular, uh, <laughs> this particular species. Yeah. Hey, well, you know that, you know, that whole uh, revolution over there, that was me. Uh, and they would just do it to tell stories. Yeah. And, uh, by the point that we get to Ardra, uh, in they're just having to scrape to survive. And so they're ripoff artists. Interesting. And, and I do plenty of uh, you know con artists in in other comics I've done. Sure. And uh, and it sort of it fit in perfectly with what I needed to do uh, to create sort of the false flag operations, which lead to this sort of you know attempted a Klingon coup. Okay. Uh, that is is the central element of the trilogy. Well, that sounds a lot more fascinating than what we get in this in this episode. Uh, I like that idea. Um, you know. This is a. I think that you lose a. You know, at the beginning of the um, episode, I was talking all flowery about the amazing things you can do in sci-fi. But in this universe specifically, you know, we lose magic because there is no magic. This is all rational. And even if there is magic, it has to be proved to be not magic by the end of the story. 
And yeah. there is no, you know, we don't dig into religion very often, or if we do, we're making a very pointed um, point about something in our reality, in our world. But I like that idea of there's got to, you know, the Federation can't be everywhere at once. So you've got to have people who are on the fringes of things that are taking advantage of, frankly, yeah. kind of simple and stupid people like the Ventaxians. Well, uh, and look, illusion and illusion and impersonation is a gargantuan trope in Star Trek. Oh, absolutely. It's it's happening all the time. And so I you know it it just struck me that you know it it it, it ought to be something that we you know could sort of shine a light on yeah. and uh, at least one part of it. Yeah. Uh, and say, well, this could actually be a way of life for a number of people. Yeah, I think that's uh that's a cool kind of premise. Um the prob well, the Ventaxians are they're an interesting race. Um, we never see much of their society. You, you, you mean you mean idiots? Uh, <laughs> well, I was being diplomatic. Uh, we we never see much of their society beyond hearing that you know they're an agrarian paradise, and, but they really believe in this devil thing, uh, and they're hundred percent ready to turn this whole thing over to their eye-shattered oppressor. Why yeah. didn't they spend a thousand years trying to Daniel Webster their way out of this? Or I know this is a PG TV show, but when we come onto the scene, why isn't their society crumbling? I mean, they should be jumping out of windows or having, you know, the 1999 orgy of all time before the purge starts. Well, that's uh, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, and and that's uh, that's why when I when I again I keep going back to pray, uh, but you know, book three. I I have somebody really manipulating a society the way that, that was try you know, that 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 was intended. Yeah. Uh. And and you know there you know, book three is seriously uh, you know one of these practitioners playing God, uh. And and basically trying to upend the entire beta quadrant. Okay. Uh. By by driving people to war. Uh. In a in a religious fervor. Uh. You know it's it's uh yeah what. Uh, I, I think it, it all has to do with, um, you know, the history of these people has got to have involved something where, uh, you know, they got so gullible somehow. <laughs> yeah, something <laughs> happened. Maybe the uh, the um, pollutions and the uh, irritants in the uh, water and the air, like, uh, affected them mentally or something like that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. To make them uh, susceptible. Uh, you know, as a TV show on syndicated TV in 1991, uh, it's not leaning, it's making a comment on religion, but it's not leaning too hard into it. Um, I like the part where Picard is arguing against Ardra, and he he makes it clear that as soon as they signed this agreement, you know, a thousand years ago, they worked their asses off to make their society better. And there was no evidence of supernatural help, um, which I think is a good point. Um, but you think that in a millennium, the Ventaxians would look around and figure out, wait a minute, <laughs> there's no devil. There's no God here who has done anything. Um, we're studious, but not very bright. Apparently it kind of reminds me of uh, random comics thought. It kind of reminds me of Watchmen. Uh, the Alan Moore, you know, Dave Gibbons uh, graphic yeah. novel, uh, in which a disaster that's ostensibly caused by aliens uh, makes the superpowers, you know, beat their MX missiles into plowshares and it ushers in an age of peace. Of course, if anybody if anybody thinks through that, you get Doomsday Clock. 
Right. Yeah. Which which is the book that's now out from DC, which deconstructs that whole thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's very tenuous, but on Ven- Ventaxia too, it lasts for a thousand years. Nobody even bothers to question it. And of course, it's it's convenient that they have rejected their industrial technology. Uh, because if they had technology comparable to the Federation, they'd immediately recognize transportation and holograms and tractor beams, you know. So it's fine. They're a superstitious, reverent people. Uh, but my problem is it doesn't explain why our heroes should be really concerned. I never feel like the threat is all that real. You know, we know watching it that it's only a matter of time before Jody, Jordy's going to find a cloaked ship. Um, there's never any real worry or emphasis that Ardra is some kind of Q-like being. They even bring it up in the yeah. episode, like there's a precedent. What We've run into people like this before, uh, but they, that's immediately said, no, that's not what it is. Uh, there's no danger to the souls of our crew, whether they exist or not. You know, all we get is that guy in the Halloween devil costume. <laughs> I would have liked perhaps a plausible challenge to Picard's lack of faith so that it it's stronger when he reveals the, the charlatanism at the end. Probably the most uh, ostentatious or, or, or audacious thing that the, uh, the the bad guys do here uh, in this episode uh, is is actually pretty impressive technologically speaking in terms of the way the series is at this point. Um, and that's that they they're able to actually make the enterprise disappear. Yeah. By throwing the cloak from their own ship over that. Yeah. Uh, now it was a probably an easy line to write. Back in 1991, uh, yeah. but as I really started to think about that, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, uh, that's not something just anybody would be able to do. And so, again, when I got to uh, got to pray, um, you know, I I had that s- s- situation happening again, where you know one of these ships is being towed by the Aventine, and it's simultaneously cloaking the Aventine. And and they actually get into a legalistic discussion of, well, are we actually violating the, the treaty? The treaty? <laughs> uh, because, yeah. you know, we're not supposed to be using cloaking technology. Well, it's not actually us using the technology. It's them back there. Sure, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, um, but it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was a pretty big moment. Uh, and it, it, it kind of bespeaks of the writers not necessarily knowing what was too powerful a, a power? Yeah, plus they want to have it both ways because I could believe that if the Ventaxians don't have technology on the level of the Federation, Ardra could hide the Enterprise from the Ventaxians' sensors. And so Jordy's on the planet and he can't see it with the equipment that he's got. But then he's able to use that equipment uh, later in order to break the cloak and contact the Enterprise. And it's like, which is it? Yeah, yeah. Does it work? So, and, and actually, you know, uh, again... Uh, breaking the cloaks of these ships, uh, or rather, you know, being able to track these ships, uh, I was able to get a lot of fodder out of that, just because it, you know, they're they're, uh, you know, it's it's uh, once they've been able to solve this thing once, they ought to be able to use the, uh, you know, the the tools or, or what they knew. Yeah. Uh, again, the problem, at least in the Prey series, is it's been 20 years since this episode. And getting to the point where they're going, oh, wait, this is those guys yeah. <laughs> uh, is is the thing that takes forever. OK, I can see that. Uh, yeah, I, just, I don't know. I just would have liked a little more believable threat uh, to the crew. Um, it's something like like who mourns for Adonais. You've got a similar situation. Um, 
where they're trying to figure out if this guy's really Apollo or not. But honestly, it doesn't really matter if the antagonist is an actual god or not, because he can crush your ship with his big green hand, like whether right. or not he's supernatural. Um, and But I don't think they should have gone like full-on Magics of Megas 2. Um, I guess Kirk didn't write anything in his log about Lucian, because otherwise Starfleet <laughs> would know that the devil's a totally cool guy, and he comes from a universe of magic. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, they just want to party with him. I, I uh, want to know, who was Ardra a thousand years ago? Like, who was that? The Vintaxians seem to know pretty much exactly what happened over the intervening, uh, intervening 1,000 years. It seems like they've kept good records. So who was this person back? Who did they make the deal with? Uh, whoever it was, it was somebody who was fairly impressive because sure. I, 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 and again, I ran into this in writing. Uh -huh. uh, we don't know what Ardra's real name is. Yeah, we and, never find out. Yeah, and uh, and I I realized that the only way that I could actually play off this episode and have it have any meaning was for her name to remain Ardra, and so I I basically came up with a conceit that they use, which is you know you uh, whatever the last role you played was, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the name you operate under. Until the next one. Okay. Uh, and because otherwise, uh, you know, I, I would be calling her something else. Right. And and it would lose that thing in the imagination that helps you go, oh, yeah, well, I know what she looks like. I yeah. saw that episode. Yeah, branding is is half the game, so. Well, and, and in <laughs> fact, I it, it's why I really, and it's not just in Star Trek, but I, I, I you know, you try hard in tie-in writing not to have many scenes with no TV or movie characters in it, uh, okay. uh, none at all, because sure. that that throws everything into, well, it's just entirely now on the strength of your own description, uh, and you don't have the crutch of, yeah, people know what Picard looks like. Right, right. <laughs> there, I'm wondering if this is an example of um, history being reinterpreted as mythology. Um, there's a guy named... Euhemerus uh, in the fourth century in Macedonia, and he was a historian and a mythographer, and he was one of the first people to historically su um, to suggest that myths might be perversions of historical events, like how we're pretty sure now that King Arthur was probably an actual Romano-British leader whose actions became legend over the years. Um, or like Snorri Sturluson, the guy who uh, wrote the prose and the poetic Edda, we get most, most of our knowledge of Norse myths from him. He himself had a theory that many of the stories that he was writing about were probably real people at one point and their tales became, you know, legend and myth. Well, this connects back to, uh, you know, the other episode that, uh, that, uh, you know, we, we talked about before, uh, mm -hmm. in the previous episode we did and, and which is another, uh, you know, a big part of the, the, the trilogy was, uh, you know, we've got that with Kalis, uh, saying to us, uh, you know, well, well, you know, what if the things that Kalis is said to have really done, uh, he didn't really do. Right. Uh, you know, what does it matter if his teachings uh, are what's relevant? Yeah. And and so, um, you know, we we have here uh, and I, I, I'm not I, you know, I, I'm not one of those writers who ever sits down saying, here are the themes I'm going to hit on in this story. <laughs> Nor do I believe because, you know, when, when you ask, were the, were, were the creators of this episode trying to hit these themes? <laughs> I, I don't think. I don't think anybody out of a film class or out of a out of a writing class sits down and says, here are my themes. Here I go. Uh, <laughs> what happens is they present themselves to you later. 
And yeah. so, yeah. and so I, you know, it, it is, it is only really now, you know, even having written it myself a year from it at this point, where I'm able to say, you know, really, you know, Kalis and the illusionists are very much part of the same story, uh-huh. uh, uh, flip sides of the same, same thing. Yeah. Uh, as as told in my story, because um, you know uh, it, they're both posing uh, or or made to look like legendary figures in one way or another. Yeah, uh, and it's a matter of what they do then. I don't think that an episode like this should be held up as any kind of like treatise uh, on the positive positivity or negative uh, effects of religion. But you have to admit that the Vintaxians, you know, their piety led to a lot of improvements in their society. This was like the most successful faith-based initiative of all time. Uh, it, it could well be. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, we, we, we don't know anything about this group of people after this moment because <laughs> I don't think they ever came up again. No. Because uh, <laughs> they, they were just on their way so quickly after this. Yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, here's what here's what I you know would wonder. Uh, this episode being so highly rated, um, why didn't she get the Harry Mud treatment? Um, yeah, I don't know. Or the or the Q treatment. Uh, why didn't they get her back? Uh, you know, and I just don't know the answer to that. I don't know if there was anything behind the scenes. Uh, you know, w- with the company working together or something like that. I don't think that's even necessarily an issue. I've never heard of anything like that. I do know that if they use the character again, don't they have to pay royalties to the well, uh, original? That's that that's possible. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, it would be you know more people than they normally would have because <laughs> well. there's there's that uh, there's that uh, there's that original story being you know back in the seventies. Right. So I guess that I guess that's possible. Um, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I uh, I would I would not want to spend a whole lot of time thinking about an episode I hated. Uh, so <laughs> so you know, I I clearly yeah, didn't despise this thing. Uh, I I and uh, you know I I have uh, in the past you know had to sort of make lemonade off of some other stories, not necessarily this. <laughs> Not necessarily in this franchise, yeah. Uh, but uh, but uh, you know, make things more palatable, uh, or you know, sort of sort of you know, fiddle with things to improve them somewhat. Yeah. Uh, this is simply the sort of thing where, uh, if the story is no deeper than it is, it's because it's forty-two minutes long, right? And uh, <laughs> and it's 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 not not a not a uh, not a bottle episode really, but. There's a limited number of sets and yeah. uh, and and locations that we see. Uh, they probably weren't going to give us thousands of uh, Ventaxians, uh, <laughs> you know, really. mobbing the streets, tearing at their garments because right. of uh, <laughs> because of whatever was going on. Yeah, they leave that to the comics people and the novel writers. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you were able to make some some lemonade out of it. Um, there's a fun. But yet kind of confusing, uh, in my opinion, nod to Christmas Carol, uh, of course, in the opening of the show. It's fun because Stuart, of course, played the role of Scrooge uh, for years on stage. But I think it's it's another one of those things where um, you're not thinking about it much. I'm not. The writers aren't thinking about it much. Uh, Christmas Carol is about a man that learns to be afraid of spirits so he can learn a lesson about society. But this episode 
features characters who are going to lose their society because they can't stand up to spirits. <laughs> it just doesn't yeah. like thematically it doesn't make any sense. Um I'm not sure. I mean it 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 gets us in the notion of uh you know you know data's right there at the beginning pretending to be somebody else. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and so uh yeah I I think that I think that um you know this is this is this is an episode about costumes to a large degree. Oh, well, yeah, certainly. And uh, uh, <laughs> and it gets and it gets and it gets and it gets the Emmy Emmy nod for it. And, yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah, I think it deserved yeah. it. Uh, uh, speaking of deserving, um, I do think Marta uh, Dubois is really great as Ardra. It's a nice touch uh, to make the character female, I think. And I think it's also nice to see the villain get in trouble because they fall for somebody. Like if she could just, you look at the, you know the events of the episode. If she could just resist that beef stew, you know she yeah. might have been okay. <laughs> and he actually he lures her into the to the whole trial at the end. By sort of, you know, holding himself off from her, he kind of offers himself up and she's like, oh, I get you if I go through this whole thing that I don't feel like I have to. OK, well, let's do it. I, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed playing off of uh, off of that one sided romance that's in this. <laughs> yeah, because he's pretty uh, harsh in, to her in this in the story. And of course, there's there's another little nod there where uh, it's it's either I have Tuvok or uh, or. Uh, Tuvok or Jordy going through the database of characters that are in the ship. The ship never gets a name. Um, I call the 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 truth crafters is what I call the special effects guys. Okay. Their ship is called the Houdini. Uh, all of the various ships of their order are named after earthly magicians okay. uh, for a reason described in the book. Um, uh, but uh, but uh, you know, Jordy or or Tuvok, one of one of them remarks on the fact that you know there are a number of uh, a number of characters modeled in this database uh, for her to appear as, including uh, Deanna Troy dressed as well. We okay. <laughs> she's yeah, <laughs> she's uh, dressed rather, rather provocatively, and I think that's about all they say about that. But it's uh, uh, it. it, it it was interesting that Ardra assumed that he had a thing for Troy at the beginning there. Right. Uh, and of course that, you know, that, that never came up probably anywhere else in the series, but this one episode. That is really so. interesting. Because, yeah, exactly. It shows how well she did not know him. Um, and I wonder yeah. if that's a failing on Ardra's part, um, having that skill of being able to read, you know, your mark, or if it's just... You know, she just doesn't. She took a shot and she missed. She assumed that Picard was as corruptible, you know, as everybody else that she has fooled well, and tricked. I, I think it partly was she wasn't expecting the Enterprise. Oh, yeah. Um, and again, that was another thing that I established with the uh, with the uh, with the truth crafters in Prey. They've got a whole room, which is the the myth making department. And all they do is research. And, uh, you know, because we have a character who's posing as uh, as a as a as a famous Klingon. Uh, but, you know, there are others that they can pose as they've got to go around real quick and know what the situation is so they can whisper in your ear. <laughs> right. The guy in okay. the chair. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. OK. Well, all right. And and and, uh, you know, it, 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 no, it, it really is. A, it really is a live TV show for these guys. Yeah. Uh, because. <laughs> Their actor is on stage, um, uh, you know, almost like an anchor man receiving information in her ear, uh, and uh, and uh, being told, "Okay, all right, 
we're going to call up an image of, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, we got it. Uh, Picard's, uh, Picard's uh, counselor. Uh, uh, so here we go. All right, three, two, one. You know, make sure you talk like her. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so, you know, that was, that was, uh, that was the thing. And again, it, it, because a person has to physically inhabit, uh, these, uh, these, 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 uh, these, uh, you know, illusions that makes it, I think, qualitatively different than, you know, holographic magic. Okay. It makes it more of a performance thing. And so I, I have a lot about acting, uh, and method acting. Uh, okay. And of course, method acting there's a joke about that at the beginning of this episode yeah exactly Uh, because uh, again whoever inhabits these characters that these truth crafters that these illusionists are creating you know is 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 really going to be interacting with the with the world and they're going to be encountering things that uh, you know they they wouldn't necessarily expect um and and you've got to have an answer yeah and so she must have researched the heck out of ardra uh, oh, for the, sure. Yeah. But, but as far as, as far as everything else, yeah, I think they were kind of winging it. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see that, uh, a candid camera in the 24th century have, uh, I'm trying to think of who the Alan Funt character would be, but, uh, you know, whispering things into somebody's ear and, uh, messing with, uh, just a passersby and onlookers. Oh yeah. Do you have any uh, last thoughts about this uh, episode as we, uh, wrap up? Have you, have we said it all? I think so. I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I've, I've plugged it probably 19 times here, but the, <laughs> uh, you know, the, 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 the tray, pro, the, the, the tray, the, the prey trilogy, uh, is, uh, yeah, is, is something that I think, uh, if people find the notion of, um, how illusionists would work, uh, in the Star Trek universe, particularly in the next generation era, how they would work and be successful at what they're doing, um, you know, I, I did do the homework in terms of how physically this would work within Star Trek science rules. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I also thought through to the, ex- the extent that I could, uh, you know, uh, how, how, uh, these people would be attracted to this particular line of work. Um, and, you know, Ardra was the only person we ever saw with this particular group. Yeah. Uh, we have no notion of anything else. You know, the whole notion that there's more than one is is my invention. Um, but I, I think that, um, you know, we're in 42 minutes or however many it is, we're able to get, uh, you know, a glimpse at something possibly larger. Uh, it just wasn't something where, you know... The, you know, the series by this point did have sort of arc storylines, mm-hmm. uh, like with, uh, with, uh, the Klingons and, uh, and, you know, wharf status and that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, Picard's relationship with the Borg, uh, but they didn't have a lot of them and it still wasn't, you know, what we have today in terms of master planning, uh, <laughs> for the, yeah, Definitely for, not. you know, for. Yeah, for every episode of Discovery or whatever it happens to be, having something important in it that's leading into the next thing, that's leading into the next thing, and leading into the next thing. Right. Um, you know, even at the time, you know, you go a couple of years from this, you've got Babylon 5, and when the Technomages are introduced, it's not a one-off. Uh, they come back. Right. Uh, and, you know, there's a there's a purpose to them. That's a show that I wish was uh, was on uh, something streaming somewhere, anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that is weird. 
been been quite a long time since I saw that. Well, uh, that is uh, definitely, I think, an interesting uh, avenue to explore. And so, if you're uh, so, if our listeners want to check out the Prey trilogy, they definitely should. Um, I like the fact that this episode does kind of suggest that. Of course, you took that and ran with it. Uh, you know, it's a fun episode, and plus, we're at the you know, we're in the middle of the fourth season. I mean, TNG is at this point firing on all cylinders. Any episode would look bad in between The Wounded and Clues, uh, which are two of, uh, in my opinion, like the best episodes of uh, Next Generation ever. So I'm willing to cut it a little slack, but I certainly leave with a lot of questions. <laughs> More questions um, than answers. Th- this would be this would be one of the top four or five first season episodes. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Or even it's if it, just like I said before, past- even if it was, did become an original series episode, we would definitely remember the courtroom scene uh, yeah. where Kirk is having to argue with the Enterprise computer, you know, over this con, con man. Uh, I just think the series had kind of moved on and grown by this point. Yeah, and, that's a great point. Uh, and it's and and so it does feel like what it really is, which is an episode at a time. Yeah, I think last time on the show uh, you said that. Picard was your favorite captain, but you had written quite a bit for Riker. How do you think that Riker would have handled this situation if it was the Titan instead of the Enterprise? <laughs> well, uh, if uh, if Deanna showed up wearing what she does in this episode, uh, well, uh, well, they're married now, so uh, right. that's, shoot that's, first, uh, ask questions later. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, uh, but but uh, I I think that um, uh, yeah, Picard's a lot more patient. Uh, so I think that, that, uh, yeah, you know, uh, he's, uh, he's, Picard is more patient with the Ventaxians than Riker would be. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, uh, Picard, where Picard loses his patience is with Ardra horsing around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and that, that gets under his skin and that unnerves him. I think Riker would have an easier time handling that. Uh, just because, uh, yeah, his, of his skills with interpersonal relations. Yeah. Uh, and the fact, the fact that he has probably been a, uh, a seduction target a few times in his career. Uh, he probably knows what to, uh, what to, what to, what to do. Turn it right back on her. For your second appearance on the show, you'll be promoted to Lieutenant Junior Grade. And of course, you were assigned to the archives as an archivist uh, on the last episode. So I think that you could have had a very instrumental role in helping to stop Ardra by going through the records of law and Ventaxian history. Uh, Maybe we never would have reached that point in the first place. Oh, very good. Finding those precedents. Yeah. Maybe so, maybe so. (laughs) Uh, Well, Lieutenant Miller, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, On uh, Twitter at JJMFarAway, Facebook, John Jackson Miller, and then on uh, my uh, my comics website is Comicron.com. Uh, Twitter for that is just plain Comicron, C-O-M-I-C-H-R-O-N. And then uh, on my regular website, farawaypress.com, I have behind-the-scenes notes on most of my stories. Uh, Prey is the one I haven't gotten to yet because it's going to be many, many pages (laughs) Uh, when I get those notes up. Sure. but uh, but I'm hoping to get those up eventually here. All right. So go check those out. Also, I guess people can get your um, Star Trek IDW uh, comic book coming out soon. Uh, it's a Star Wars IDW comic oh, of course. book. That's, yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's the uh, the Star Wars Adventures Annual 2018, uh, and uh, that should be coming out April 4th. Awesome. And people can check out your uh, 
I always say KOTOR, but I guess for the audience, I should say Knights of the Old Republic uh, Marvel collections as well. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for joining me. Glad to be here. And we are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. closed.